Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. In our last time together, we looked at a few verses in Matthew's Gospel that speak about the baptism of Jesus. This ended with glowing statements of Jesus' identity and mission coming straight from heaven. In this next episode, we'll look at what happens immediately after. I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel this time, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now Jesus began his ministry season by making a deliberate statement of identification with humanity in the most powerful way. Baptism was about acknowledging sin and guilt and washing to be cleansed from it in repentance and readiness. We know that none of this actually applied to Jesus, but he went there anyway. The Father in heaven is fine with this action, as is indicated through his spoken endorsement. Now the Holy Spirit, who rested on him just minutes prior at his baptism, leads him not to the crowds just yet but deeper into the wilderness and solitude. And here, Jesus faces a time of temptation and reckoning. Now, I must admit that when I first read these verses many years ago, I found myself asking, what sort of temptations are these? I understand the hunger thing and the temptation to make bread out of rocks. But choosing not to throw myself off a building or join a crazy satanic cult somewhere, well, these seem like no-brainers to me. But the confronting nature of these statements help us to see that we're reading about an intensely strategic and critical event taking place here. Satan's opening statement shows that he is looking to undo or at least challenge the statement that heaven had just made about Jesus. So you're the son of God, hey? Then prove it. You're the Messiah, right? Then go ahead and make it known. You see, all the temptations Jesus faced were designed on one level to appeal to his humanity, but there was also the ultimate desired outcome of undermining Jesus' divine messianic call in play here too. The humanity part is easy to see. In his humanity, Jesus was hungry. And the devil tells him he could fix that right now, and since he was the son of God, it was his divine right to operate in full strength. In his humanity, he was aware of the dangers his body would encounter. Surely it would be his divine right to have an angelic army ready any time harm might be at hand, right? 
In his humanity, he was aware of the pain that the cross would bring. Surely the easier option would be an acceptable one, right? But the messianic challenge is evident when we look just below the surface of this. The speculation among the rabbis over the century or so before Jesus was rife with lofty statements and expectations about what the Messiah would mean to the people and how he would be made known. There was a written belief at the time that said when the Messiah comes, he will stand upon the roof of the holy place. He will announce to Israel, you poor, the time of your redemption draws near. Other rabbis believed and wrote that there would be another time of manna, like what Israel experienced in the wilderness 1,500 years prior. If you know about Jesus feeding the 5,000, you may remember that the crowd sought to make him king immediately after. It was because of this very expectation. The bread from stones in the desert and the experience on the temple rooftop presented Jesus with an opportune time to make himself known as the Messiah and gather the nation together. He could do all these supposed messianic signs. He could be coronated and be loved and celebrated. He could fit into the human agenda and appear to have the task of being Messiah done and dusted in a blood-free fashion. And he also had the offer to do this with Satan's help. The middle temptation is very clear about this. Satan tells the truth that the kingdoms of the world were his to do what he wanted. At creation, the power of stewardship was given to Adam. But Adam fell, and he handed that power over, not back to God, but to Satan. As a world enslaved to its sin, the world was Satan's domain. But here it appears he is willing to give it back to its creator. But obviously there's a very big catch. Satan essentially says this, let's strike a bargain. Forget all that future cross and redemption stuff and let's look at the here and now. I've got the keys to the world in my hand. You came with a desire to redeem it and I'll just give it over. All you have to do is worship me. You want the world back bad enough? This will be as peaceful a takeover as it gets. I'll make it easy. Say I'm better than you and that you'll do this my way and we'll call it square. The temptation before Jesus was simple. Be the Messiah the popular way, albeit the flimsy and temporal way, or resist and do it the hard but necessary way. Defeat Satan at the cross, or side with him the painless way, in a clearly one-sided treaty. Jesus chose the pain. It was at this point that Jesus chose the cross and the suffering that would come, and I'm certainly grateful that he did. So let's go deeper and have a chat about temptation in our lives as we consider what Jesus faced. The enemy usually waits till we are vulnerable before hitting us hard with temptation. And we see that in play in this passage. Jesus was in a vulnerable state. Vulnerable because he was now officially in his ministry season. Vulnerable because he had just gotten baptized and separated himself for that task. And vulnerable because he's been fasting for 40 days. It was a perfect storm of vulnerability. In the last episode, I talked about identifying with Jesus, but I think it's important to mention that identifying with him is not the easiest thing to do. When you make that commitment to set yourself apart for the Lord, you also make yourself somewhat vulnerable, and temptation comes because of that. I know that you will agree with me when I say that temptation comes hard and often. From experience, I know it gets particularly savage when we begin working through things in our character or commitment. So if we want to escape temptation, does that mean we avoid situations of vulnerability? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. The answer is yes, if it is something sinister. 
Flesh-driven vulnerability is the type that isolates us from God's word and God's people, and this puts us in a dangerous place. Remember that sin is designed to separate us from God, so when our fleshly self is calling and we answer, the gulf of separation gets wider. But the answer is no if we are doing it like Jesus was. Becoming vulnerable before God and each other is necessary because it means we are open and honest before the Lord and we have an honest network of believers that provides the means of accountability we need in order to fight the attacks that come. So when we're tempted, it's good to try to understand what triggered it. Is it because of a spiritual time of vulnerability? Have we, like Jesus, drawn a line in the sand and set ourselves apart? In that setting, it's usually a case of Satan wanting to see what we've got. But if it's not that, could it be that your season of temptation is happening because we left our fleshly selves open and vulnerable? Have we separated ourselves from our spiritual habits? Is our Bible gathering dust? Is our prayer life getting thin? Is our time with God's people becoming limited? Do we need to shift the focus of our vulnerability and get to a place of accountability again? Jesus was clearly in the first group. His decision and direction was undergoing some proof testing under demonic pressure. And importantly for us and our salvation, it wasn't showing any signs of cracking. Jesus maintained his position and made it abundantly clear that he was staying the course that had been outlined for him at the very beginning. Becoming spiritually vulnerable like him is healthy. But being that way in the flesh is not. Either way, it's a given that temptation comes because the enemy hates our progress. He revels in our defeat. And for good or bad, we are always vulnerable. Being spiritually vulnerable at least ensures we're not going it alone. But being vulnerable to the world is a lonely path indeed. It's also helpful to understand why temptation is so attractive. It's amazing the sinful things we are capable of doing when we let our mind and our hearts wander. Satan knows what makes us tick and what things we are attracted to. And the truth of the matter is that although all things are being made new within, the full realization of that will not occur this side of eternity. Even for believers, temptation is going to be a constant force to fight against. Although there is a specific challenge to the messianic call of Christ here, The temptation that Jesus experiences still has a degree of similarity to the things you and I face every day, and there's great value in working through them the way Jesus did. So let's consider what was in Satan's playbook, and then let's consider how Jesus counted. In this passage, we see the temptation of self-comfort at the expense of the self-discipline that God calls us to. When Jesus was fasting, he had the temptation of food put before him. And don't think it was just a passing comment either. It would have been laid on thick. Hey, Jesus, imagine some fresh flatbread right now, right out of the oven. Fresh olive oil and herbs, even a bit of balsamic on the side. Go on, you're hungry. How close to home might that sound for us? You might be at a party, a work event, or a family function. And common sense, and even the Bible says to be moderate and don't drink too much. But temptation says you've earned it. Go on, indulge, go overboard. You might find your computer mouse is suddenly hovering over a random pop-up window. Our godly self says, no, but there's another voice. Go on, like anyone will ever know. We make commitments to address spiritual issues in our lives. But another voice tells us that change is unnecessary. We've earned the rest. Get a bit more sleep. Binge that TV series. Skip that Sunday. Pursue distracting interests. It's all good. As Christians, we are called to value the long-term process of self-discipline. 
and do our best to look past the temporal pleasures that the sinful life can bring. I know it's easier said than done, but the blessing of God from doing so is amazing. Next, we see the temptation of self-elevation at the expense of God-elevation. Satan knew already from first-hand experience that this would have dire consequences. We see this in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. It tells us about the demise of Lucifer. Let me read it out to you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. The motivation of the devil is to always undermine the Lord, to make himself equal with God. We see this in the Garden of Eden where he challenges the standard of the Lord as he tempts Eve. His motive in our main passage is to undermine Jesus the Messiah. And the temptation we often encounter is designed to undermine the Word of God and lead us to believe that we are pulling all the strings. We see this in people everywhere, don't we? I'm in control. I'm enlightened. I'm in charge. I know better. But if we're honest, we'll work out pretty quickly that we actually don't. Deep down, we know the moral code of humanity has never improved, yet we often buy into Satan's lie that we have. In his quest to take the place of the Most High, Satan is hard at work seeking to capture our passion and our attention, and even draw our worship. Make no mistake here, to become the apparent masters of our own selves, we will worship at the wrong altar. We will think it's our own, but ultimately the master is the one we have no business bowing to. Whenever we encounter an opportunity to be elevated in this life, we must always consider the cost, because the cost will reveal the source. Is it the blessing of God in your life? You'll know because the cost will be service and blessing to others, and God will be elevated as a result through you. Is it something else? You'll know because it will seek to undermine God and do harm to others instead. You might get ahead in this life, but at what cost? To elevate ourselves in this way is to actually elevate Satan. And there is the temptation to acquire influence and power at the expense of true Christian servanthood. Everyone wants power and greatness, and doing things the worldly way calls for walking over people and getting your own way at all costs. Jesus could have built a paper kingdom that simply fed off the supposition of the people, but he would have been no better than the many false messiahs which had gone before him. He wasn't about that. He knew he came to serve, and as our example, he calls us to resist the temptations of power in favor of godly servanthood. We see three key areas of temptation here, temporal pleasure, self-elevation, and power and influence. If these temptations were designed to topple a Messiah and God's plan of redemption, then we certainly have no business entertaining these things in our lives. So let's see how Jesus responds. It's pretty simple, really, but also quite profound. Three words. It is written. This is real deep stuff when we realize that Jesus made our struggles his struggles too. Think about this. Jesus speaks of God's standard and the appropriate human response. It is written, man should not live on bread alone. It is written that man is called to worship God only. It is written that man should not test God's promises to suit their own convenience. And in doing so, he defends his personal stance in human terms. 
It is written, man should not live on bread alone, therefore neither will I. It is written that man is called to worship God only, therefore so will I. It is written that man should not test God's promises to suit their own convenience, therefore neither will I. Jesus knew the terms of the redemption plan. Jesus knew the terms of the redemption plan. Jesus knew the terms of the redemption plan. He had to walk in man's shoes and still stand perfect because he had to be a blameless human at the cross for sin to be truly punished. And he chose the human way to defeat the temptation that came his way. We know it worked because Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. This passage exposes the motives of the enemy and the passions he appeals to, and Jesus shows us the surefire way to resist with the word of God. And there's some more good news here. Hebrews 4 goes on to tell us that Jesus has full empathy for our struggles. He knows resisting isn't easy. We take comfort in knowing that Jesus has been there too. He's been tempted to focus on the temporal at the expense of the eternal. He's been tempted to elevate himself on human terms at the expense of elevating the plan of God. He's been tempted to take power the cheap way. He's been tempted to wander away from his mission and call. He's truly been tempted in every way, and we can trust him to help us in our temptations and struggles too. So let's end this episode with a word of prayer. Thank you, Jesus, that you too knew temptation. You were tempted to forsake the cross, and I thank you that you were faithful to your mission, which led to my purchase by your blood. And you were tempted in your humanity also, so you know about my vulnerabilities too. Help me to stand against the tempter the way you did. In particular, help me to be more and more familiar with the phrase, it is written. Thank you that you are not aloof from my struggles and my temptations, and that you empathize with all that I face. Please forgive me for the times I've given in, even when I could have easily walked away. And may your spirit continually lead me to paths of victory over temptation. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.